So your reputation is measured by your performance, number one, your performance. So if we're talking about a surgeon, it's the results that you achieve. And that means if you want a good reputation, you have to be constantly thinking of Kaizen, you know, the Japanese term for constant improvement. Welcome to another episode of the Rhinoplasty podcast with me, Dr. Cameron McIntosh. This is now our third of the American legends, and I am really looking forward to today's podcast. Um, this particular speaker today that I'm interviewing, I would venture to say is probably the most humble of the legends of rhinoplasty in the world. I've been so inspired by Prof. Peter Adamson in how passionate he is about the excellence that he does in his work, the way he treats people, the incredible way he responds to emails and phone calls and things. And it's just an absolute pleasure to finally have Prof. Peter on the podcast. And um, so thank you very much for your time today. Well, Cam, thank you so very much for inviting me. It really is a privilege and it's a wonderful to opportunity to sit and speak with you. We've spoken a lot, but not in uh, this kind of a, a format. And so I'm uh, really looking forward uh, to it as well as you explore maybe a little bit of my uh, experience uh, over life. And I just want to say I want to commend you too, Cam. Uh, because you represent the, the best of the next generation and all the wonderful webinars and podcasts. Uh, you really have uh, created a cutting edge uh, for all of us to be on. So it is a delight to be here with you today, and uh, I look forward to having a little bit of fun with you. Yeah, well, that's great. That's exactly what you want to do. We're going to play a game of 20 questions today. So we've worked on a, okay. a, a really interesting <laughs> list of questions. So I'm going to just right away hammer through from the first one. And... Um, yeah, I think for the listeners, this is going to be a very interesting uh, session. So we let's kick off with the first question I have. I know a little bit about you as a facial plastic surgeon, but what other interesting aspects are there about your life which we do not know about, Prof? Uh, perhaps one of the most interesting things that very few people know about is that I'm actually an identical twin. And... Uh, my twin brother is actually an infertility surgeon, or he would like to say a fertility surgeon uh, at Stanford. He's a professor there and very, very active in his uh, profession. And um, the joke in our family is that I tell everybody and say to him, well, I'm the better looking one, uh, even though we're identical. And I say, but I'll allow you that you're a little bit smarter. And he sort of likes that. So that's a joke in our family, but he's a wonderful person. And uh, we've both been very engaged uh, in medicine. I guess uh, uh, when I was younger, I was a drummer. I don't do any drumming now at all, except every once in a while, pick up a beat, uh, but love to get out, uh, you know, at some of the parties and events that we've had over the years to do a little dancing. That's nice and rhythmic to be sure. And uh, I guess uh, being a Canadian as I am, uh, the main sport that I played was ice hockey. And actually at the University of Toronto, uh, I was a goaltender and uh, we were the national champions and represented Canada at the World Games, and uh, uh, we won a bronze medal there. So that was a not not quite as dramatic, I know, Cam, as your Olympic history, but I had a, a you know a fairly uh, involved uh, life as a, as a hockey player. And uh, I guess moving on into uh, my later uh, life now, uh, I keep very active now still, even though I've just closed my clinical practice with uh, presentations, still uh, writing some book chapters and helping other people, advising them on such things and even if 
few few peer reviewed papers, and just finished helping a a uh, last year medical student uh, who's uh, an artist and an illustrator and a writer. Uh, we wrote a book together, a Patty in the Pandemic. She did most of the really creative work, but I did help her a fair bit with some of the writing and also getting this book uh, self published, uh, Patty in the Pandemic. It's wonderful for young kids to learn about public health measures and things, and. Uh, I'm loving the webinars, and uh, I've done some podcasts before, not with you at, at this stage uh, in my life, and I'm still keeping very active, as I think you know, uh, helping just advise uh, the next generation. I'm at that wonderful stage, Cam, where I have uh, a lot of uh, time to and make time to help other people, but if they like to take the advice, terrific, and if they don't, well, that's okay too. You know, you get past the point that uh, that that is uh, an, an issue for you. <clears throat> and uh, then the, the big focus of my life now, uh, I always feel you've got to make your future greater than your past. And even though I close my clinical practice, I'm really putting a lot of time into our Face the Future Foundation, mm -hmm. which I founded 25 years ago. And uh, we've had 45 missions. We go to four different countries, but we're looking at expanding to about three more countries. And a uh, little bit like you, still keep really active. In the winter, um, I like to downhill ski, uh, snowshoe. In the summer, we bike, we hike. I play golf a little bit, but very, very badly. Uh, also like to canoe up on Georgian Bay, which is a beautiful, largest freshwater uh, bay in the world. And I'm even watching a little Netflix these days. I, I never, ever had time to do any of this before. And uh, reading books. Uh, right now I'm reading Harry Potter. I'm on the fourth book, The Goblet of Fire, because I think it's just wonderful to have the time to be taken away uh, to another uh, world. So I guess that covers it a little bit of, you know, the guy outside the operating room or the guy who's not standing at the podium. Wow. Thanks. That's, well, I think I'm also married to an identical twin. Um I hope I married the pretty and clever one, but I can't say that publicly, I guess. <laughs> anyway, let's, let's crack on to <laughs> well, question number two. So, from, yeah, okay. No, Canada and actually North America has a distinguished history of medical discovery. What can you tell us about some of the impressive figures from your early days and what did you learn from them? Um, well, I, I must admit, Cam, I'm an unabashed uh, promoter of our University of Toronto. I've been very blessed to have been here. Many other wonderful universities around the world, of course, but we've had a wonderful university. I go back far enough, uh, Cam, that was I, when I was an undergraduate student, I was actually taught by Ernie McCullough, and he and, uh, and Tull, James Tull, were the uh, individuals who actually discovered stem cells. They were discovered here at the U of T. And uh, the great anatomist, uh, J.C. Boileau Grant, actually came and critiqued me in the anatomy room. We used to get 400 hours of anatomy, if you can believe it, in my undergraduate course. And he, he critiqued me as I dissected out the lateral cutaneous nerve of the thigh. I still remember doing that. And he you know, tried to make you a little bit of anxious as you did it. Um, uh, Charles Best, who was the co-discoverer of insulin and also purified heparin so that we can use it the way we do today, was a mentor of mine as an undergraduate. 
graduate. We had a very small class, just 28 people who were identified as potential researchers or medical, you know, practitioners. So we had a very small class and we were given all these amazing people to work with. A good uh, family friend of ours and still a friend until he died a few years ago was Bill Bigelow. It was Bill Bigelow just a mile from our ski cabin where he did all the studies with uh, groundhogs and discovered hypothermia. And he was the first to apply hypothermia to cardiac surgery. And he was also a pioneer in pacemakers. Uh, he was actually the MC at, at my wedding. And I guess in more recent years, uh, someone who's become a good friend, we don't see each other enough these days, but is John Polanyi, who's a Nobel Prize chemist. And uh, he did initial work back in the 1960s on chemical reactions, which was the forerunner of the discoveries of the infrared lasers. So the lasers and things we use today uh, from John. And there are, are many others, too, in fact. And so I've been very blessed. There are some good things to getting a little older. You do meet a lot of great people along the way if you just keep moving and, and, and keep your eyes out. Um, I think in facial plastic surgery, the, there's so many, I so many, but names that I think everybody on this call would know would be uh, Jack Anderson, of course, who was my fellowship director. And uh, Jack was always looking, we'd be operating, he'd be saying, look at here, Peter, in a southern accent from New Orleans, you know, look at here, Peter, look at here, Peter. And he'd always be showing things, always be thinking about things. And uh, it was he, Jack, who coined the term rhinoplasties, the thinking man's operation. And I've always remembered that and thought it was true. And his partner at the time was none other than Calvin Johnson. And Calvin, uh, just an amazing soft tissue surgeon as well as a... Uh, uh, you know, wonderful rhinoplasty surgeon, and I'm not sure whether you're going to ask me. I won't say much now except to say that it was during my fellowship that I showed Jack his first external rhinoplasty, as we called it then, and showed Calvin his first external rhinoplasty. And Calvin was terrific. He said, PETA, and that southern accent again, I'll never forget it, PETA, there's no shortcuts to quality. No shortcuts to quality. So I learned that from him, and he also said attitude is everything. you got to have the right attitude, he would say. And... Um, I guess uh, just a couple of others would be Gene Tardy, who, of course, was a, uh, you know, a, a great figure in his time. And I guess the line I remember from him, which says it all, was that, you know, we never leave the University of Rhinoplasty. And just, uh, in, you know, telling us all that if you wanted to become a master at this operation, you really did have to think about it and work hard at it. Uh, your entire life. Mm -hmm. And uh, maybe the last person I might mention, it's, it's more recent, but I do believe that he's been a towering figure himself. And just as we have stood upon the shoulders of giants, he has become a giant. Yes, there are some others too, but I think a giant among giants has been, you know, Dean Toriumi. And we come from the same pedigree. Dean did his fellowship with Jack Anderson and Calvin Johnson. And when Dean was with Calvin that they wrote uh, the book, uh, open structure rhinoplasty, which, of course, began that whole era and, of course, is still very much on our radar today as we discuss structural versus preservation rhinoplasty. And I remember Calvin saying to me, he says, this guy, Toriumi, says, he's just terrific. He said, you know, we're writing this book together. And, and, and he says, he's just marvelous. So way, way back in his fellowship time, Dean was already, you know, had his spurs on the horse, as it were. There's been so many others, and perhaps some listening to this call, Cam, but we've just had some wonderful giants in our field, and mm. it's it's been a real privilege for me and a great fortune to have been able to spend so much time with them. Oh, that's great. So then the third question is, how did you get into facial plastic surgery? 
well, at the University of Toronto, someone I didn't mention, but uh, it, it's important to mention him now, was Dr. Wilf Goodman. We all called him the woofer. Nobody knows that, but we called him the woofer. But anyway, he was a big, imposing man. It was Dr. Goodman who went to the American Academy of Facial Plastic Surgery meeting in New York City in 1969, and he heard Padovan, Yugoslavian at that time, uh, speak about, quote unquote, external rhinoplasty, really bringing it to North America from, you know, its roots with uh, with Sarasur and, and others in, in Europe. And so Wilf Goodman came back and started to do this in 1971 in Toronto, and he published a paper in the Laryngoscope on external rhinoplasty. And interestingly, that paper just a few years ago was identified by the Laryngoscope editors as one of the two most important papers in, uh, you know, otolaryngology, head and neck surgery in the last 50 years. So I was I was a resident with him in my third year. So we did quote unquote external at that time rhinoplasty in uh, in Toronto. And uh, uh David Bryant, uh, people would not know of him, of him, but he was a tremendous surgeon. He got me interested in it, gave me my first uh, rhinoplasty to do. He said, go ahead, Peter. And, and he didn't come into the room at all. Three hours later, which was mostly an hour and a half of, you know, sucking up and sopping up blood and a little bit of technical work. <laughs> I finished that as a third year resident all by myself. It was some fella having a revision who had had his nose broken about, you know, a dozen times in the wrong places. But anyway, that was my first rhinoplasty. And, and then it was, it was Dr. Bryant who said, well, you know, if you're going to do a fellowship, you should go with, uh, you know, Jack Anderson. And he introduced me to Jack. And then uh, Calvin Johnson was his um, uh, uh, partner at that time. And we were in the operating room one day. I think it was October, November of my fellowship year. And Jack said, Peter, he said, what do you think about this, uh, you know, this Goodman external rhinoplasty approach? And I said, I said, well, Dr. Anderson, I can still remember it, you know, like it happened a week ago or a month ago. I said, well, Dr. Anderson, I think it's a pretty good operation. You ought to try a few. He said, okay, well, well, let's do that. Well, he'd been a great opponent to external rhinoplasty because he did his, uh, his cartilage delivery sometimes or just his trans uh, cartilage approach, but he tried it and he really really liked it. And about two weeks after that, Calvin came up to me and Calvin used to do his noses separately on a Wednesday afternoon when Jack was off. He said, Peter, he said, I, he said, I understand you showed Jack this new little incision thing. He said, will you come in and you show me how we do this too? So I did about a couple of weeks later. And that's how Jack and Calvin, uh, you know, first got got interested in it. And then that very next year, just eight or 10 months later, uh, uh, Dr. Anderson uh, did a paper on the scar because that was always the big bugaboo. And we went together. Uh, he and I put on a course, the very first course in external rhinoplasty at the American Academy of Laryngology. It was 1981 in September. And people were falling out the doors, just falling out the doors. There must have been 150 people in this small room. And that was how external rhinoplasty got introduced to North America. And because Jack Anderson then turned around, because he had been quoted, there's nothing you can do with an external approach I can't do with a closed approach. And then he turned around and people, because he was such a master, followed him. And then one last funny story about this, about how external rhinoplasty, at least one of the roots, there may have been others I'm not aware of, but one of the routes that went back to Europe was I was in my office in about 1987, 88. I got a phone call from a couple of guys in the Netherlands, Hade Vauk and Tamo Zilker, and they'd been reading a paper of mine on vacation. They were friends. They said, can we come and visit for a couple of weeks? So they did. 
we got a friendship. I went back and gave, I think, one of the first courses in the Netherlands back in the mid 80s on external rhinoplasty. And it took off from there, promoted by uh, Tamil and, and, and Hade Vauk. And as they say, so many others came on board and, and the rest is sort of history. Wow. It's amazing to hear that. You've actually answered the fourth question at the same time when I want to know more about <laughs> external rhinoplasty. So, okay. So in a way, this fifth question might be a bit moot because I think I probably know what it is. But what drew you to become into rhinoplasty, especially to become a master rhinoplasty surgeon? Um, well, I always loved anatomy. I mentioned all those anatomy lessons that we had. And um, I really liked rhinoplasty because it was, you know, it, it was anatomic. It was dynamic. Uh, it's a, a philosophical operation in many ways. You know, today, think of all the philosophies we talk about. It's incredibly uh, creative and it's artistic. And I always liked people. I like to work with people. And I, for me, I always felt that people's faces were really about the most important aspect of their anatomy. And just, it was so challenging. And I thought, well, I, I want that challenge. I want to have that greatest challenge to deal with the technical aspects and all those other aspects uh, related uh, to rhinoplasty. And I remember in my uh, PGY3, third year residency year, when I was making that decision, what to do, I spoke with Dick Webster and Probably most of the listeners wouldn't know Dick Webster, but he was a plastic surgeon in Harvard who did teach many of us in otolaryngology head and neck surgery. And I, and I spoke with him and I thought he'd give me five minutes and he gave me an hour. And he said, you know, Peter, I'll never forget this. He said, I love what I do. Every day is better, better than the day before. I never want it to end. And I remember walking out after that as a third year resident saying, Anybody who can say that when they're in their 60s and had a career doing this, that's what I want to do. And that was the decisive moment. Wow. And um, I've never regret, never regretted it for a moment since then. It's been an absolutely marvelous career. And I'm sure everyone who's doing this, uh, you know, facial plastic surgery or specializing in rhinoplasty uh, feel very much the same. There's such incredible breadth to it. Mm. We can be independent in what we do. Uh, if you have a bent to being an entrepreneur or a business person, this is the place that you can do that. Uh, it's a it's a field in which you must um, accept responsibility for what you do more than many others, but you also have the authority to do it. And to my mind, that's a perfect world in which to live. Great. Okay. So question six, what is the favorite single technical aspect of rhinoplasty? Um, I love I love doing the tip. And uh, part of that is because, again, it has all the theoretical challenge. Uh, you know, I've written about the MRH model and notwithstanding all the various techniques today, that's a philosophical model about how you diagnose what's wrong with the tip that you're looking at and you want to correct. And also it philosophically and gives you, you know, algorithmic ways to say, well, what are the various tools that I'm going to use to correct that? And it doesn't matter what tools you use, you can apply that technique. So this is part of that thinking man's operation. So I love it because 
every tip is different. We all know that we look at the nose preoperatively, and we often think we can tell what those cartilages in the tip, indeed the dorsum, look like. We often get in there, not infrequently, and say, well, gee, it doesn't look like I thought it did. No matter how experienced you are, we all have this happen. We all see asymmetries and say, gee, I thought that was going to be concave and looks a little more convex here, whatever. And so there's the intellectual challenge and the planning of it beforehand, which I love. And then there's the practical aspect once you get in there. And, uh, you know, I don't even want to make a, a simple chair in woodworking. I know some people do, but I can certainly spend three, over, three hours fussing over, putting some great little graphs in and creating a good aesthetic and structure with various techniques in the tip. And if something doesn't work, of course, well, you go try something different. So I love it because of those challenges, but also because I do believe once you really understand the nasal tip intellectually and you understand it and you get those certain tools you can use, I think that you can get really good tip results consistently. Mm -hmm. It's very, very satisfying. Okay. And then you have to get on to the rest part of it, which I think I know what you might ask me next, if that was the best yes. part. <laughs> That's question seven. What is the most difficult part of rhinoplasty? Well, you know, it's going to be different for different people, isn't it? But for me, even though technically in some ways it is much easier than the tip. Now, of course, you know, if, if we do get into talking about preservation structure, et cetera, I know there's an argument to be made against that, you know, point that I've just made. But to me, certainly if you're talking reduction rhinoplasty and reduction of the nasal dorsum, you know, lowering the cartilage and the bridge and osteotomies, that is relatively, quote unquote, simpler from a thought process to do. However, from a judgmental perspective, a judgmental perspective, where is this going to end up? How is this going to heal with skin, soft tissue envelope, uniqueness, the variabilities from patient to patient? Also, everything varies, of course, how much it's being reduced or augmented trying to determine exactly where that dorsal bridge was going to you know, end up every time was one of the most challenging things to do. And as we all know, notwithstanding people come in with all kinds of complaints about their noses, one of the very commonest ones, if not the most common, is they don't like to bump. They want to lower the bump. So trying to get just the right amount of lowering, leaving a little strength and not getting a sloop. It's much easier to put a sloop in noses, but sloops aren't generally natural looking noses. Mm -hmm. And so it's much harder, I've always felt, to get that radix point, you know, the rhinion point, the super tip break point, the tip defining point, to get those four points just so mm. was a challenge. Regardless of experience, you got better, but it was always a challenge. Yeah. Well, I'm glad to hear that you have those challenges as well. Okay, let's change track slightly now for questions number eight and nine. So we wanna, I want to get a little insight in terms of like patients who might be uh, listening to this. So as a rhinoplasty surgeon, what are some of the important advice that you give to patients pre-operative? Um, yeah, I, I, I'm going to be a little eccentric on this, and uh, this truly is what I do, but it is a little bit different, I think, than what, what many people do. Um, I, I really don't feel that, you know, surgeons uh, in particular, but I don't feel that the autocratic method is where we ever should have been, and certainly not today. I mean, we have a much more egalitarian approach with our patients as it should be. It's a partnership. And so I try to give advice to patients by having them 
what shall I say, uncover that advice themselves. And I'm just there to direct them. So every consultation I would begin after some pleasantries, I'd say, if we were sitting here a year from today and you had had your rhinoplasty a year ago, what would have to have happened for you to feel that this has all been a worthwhile thing for you to do, that you've made progress in your life? And so in doing that, I would get the patient to tell me how this was going to really make an impact on their life. And that would always allow me with reflective listening, reflective listening to say, okay, that sounds good. And I would say that's good. But if they weren't quite on it then, then I would be able to give them quote unquote advice and direct them. Mm -hmm. And obviously I'd want to see how they accepted that advice, how they, they accept that willingly, or they feel there's some argument about that. That's an issue that I've got to think about. The next question would be, so what are the reasons you've not had a rhinoplasty before? What are the worries that you have? Well, of course, this is where patients jump in and say, I'm worried about the bad result, or I didn't have the money, or you know, I was always too busy uh, you know, with kids at home, whatever it was. But if you think about it, they're then identifying for you what their worries are. And then I would respond directly to each of those to answer those questions. Now, the other thing that, of course, subtly it's doing it's answering those questions for that patient to allow them to move on, to have a rhinoplasty, because until those questions are answered for them, they're not going to be able to intellectually, psychologically move on to say, yes, they're ready to have it. Mm -hmm. The next part builds on that, and I would say, so let's say you've had your rhinoplasty and uh, it's turned out well for you, and we're out a year or whatever. Um, how will this have changed your life? What's gonna be the good parts about this for you? And then again, the patient's telling themselves why this is a good project for them. And again, I can then substantiate that for them. And this is confirming that they're a good candidate. And again, if there's anything that any red flags, you mention them. And then finally, I would say, and so why is this a good time now? I mean, think about it. If, if a person comes in and they're 30 or 40, whatever age, and they've not had a rhinoplasty, we all know most of them have disliked their nose since they were 12, 13, 14 years old. Most of them, unless it's traumatic, they dislike their nose from teenagers. What took them so long? Mm -hmm. And so you want to find out why now and say, well, yes, I think this is a good time for you to do this because, and you go back and you reflect and the, tell them all those positive things they've said, reflective listening back. And then at that point, they feel really confident that you have their confidence that they can make the right decision to go ahead. So that's how I would give advice rather than having bullet form of the things I needed to tell them. It would be tailored, sculpted for each patient. I wish I had found this out five years ago. That's fascinating. Well, there's definitely. still time. And if you think about it, it's really, it's really, it's, it's a sales. And I don't like to use sales, but even Jack Anderson used to say, Peter, everybody's selling something. And, and that isn't meant in a bad way. It's that everybody wants to get confidence in other people. Mm -hmm. we, all, we, we all want other people to like us. We want other people to partner with us, have a relationship with us. And so this just helps you to really explore and deepen that relationship or conversely determine this is not a relationship that I would like to have. The patient, of course, might feel the same way. That may be not the relationship they want to have. Okay, well, this, this now brings me to this next question. It's actually quite difficult at times. It's and I want to read it out to you what I wrote here. It says, we, will find, we all find it difficult to turn down the aesthetic surgery patients, especially revision rhinoplasty patients, who are pushing you to do the procedure. How do you manage them and what do you do? Have you got any tips for us around that? 
Um, this is a challenge, isn't it? And I think the disappointed patient, worse if it's your own patient, but just as bad sometimes or, you know, still not good if it's someone else's patient that you're taking care of, is one of the toughest aspects of, of our you know, professional life to deal with, I think probably uh, the toughest. So the first thing is, uh, you know, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. I think in selecting patients, particularly for younger surgeons, if there are any younger surgeons listening, there is a great tendency, as we all know, to want to just operate, gosh, I haven't had a rhinoplasty patient walk in for, you know, three weeks or four weeks, you know, I, I should do this patient. But remember that good patients tend to know other good patients. So if you get a good result with a good patient, they're going to tell their friends or they're going to have people who are good people. And that's how you build your practice in an inverted pyramid. And if you always think about trying to self-select out good patients to start with, your probability of then creating a very loyal practice and patients come forever. In my practice, I had daughters and granddaughters. I had mothers and sisters and aunts and uncles and whatever coming into the practice. You almost don't have to market if you really do good work for 10 or 15 years and create all these relationships. And not only that, it's a very happy practice for you because good people tend to like good people. They tend to be satisfied. So I think the first thing is that ounce of prevention. Now, when you have a disappointed patient, it could be for different reasons. And it will be a little bit different if it's yours or someone else's. So let's take your own patient. You know, if your own patient is disappointed in their result, you have to look at what's causing their disappointment. Perhaps it was that just the technical challenge was greater than you could have gotten a good result with in which case you maybe overstepped a little bit, and maybe you shouldn't have done that case, and mm -hmm. you learn from it, but it's a little late now. Another thing could be that maybe the patient had unrealistic expectations. You didn't realize it. They didn't tell them to you. Sometimes they won't tell you if they want to get a surgery, and then you have to deal with the expectation aspect of it. In my early career, and I think, uh, Cam, this was the story with most uh, you know, surgeons 30 years ago, they'd say, I did my best to the patient and that's as good as it gets. And, you know, if you're going to have anything more done, uh, you're going to have to pay me for this and, and whatever. Uh, I started out like that 40 years ago, but then changed my mind on that. I felt, you know, if you go buy a, a Mercedes or a BMW, you don't have to expect to go back six months or a year later and have to get a new axle on it or something. So my feeling was that I wanted to keep the patient's uh, as happy as possible. And so if there's a little thing, even if it didn't seem much to you or me, if it could be done reasonably to make it better, I would deal with it. Mm -hmm. And I'd do it. Earlier on, I might have said, oh, you don't need that. It looks normal. It's fine. I would do it if I could make it better. If I couldn't, I would say, listen, the challenge of making that better is greater than the potential benefit. And our goal is to have you as happy as possible. We shouldn't do it. Now, you, we can bring in here the, the patient who was not your initial patient, but some other patient looking for your revision, and you don't wish to do them. Again, determine what the reasons are. A real physical issue they have that just can't be corrected, or they've had so many operations it can't be corrected, whether it's outside your expertise, whether it's a psychological issue with that patient, you just know even if you get a great technical, you know, aesthetic structural result, they won't be happy, or there's a high risk of that. And then finally, if it's your own patient, you look and say, well, did I mess up? And so what I will say is, listen, I'll say, you are here to see me for my professional advice, and I want to give you the best possible advice I can. 
I know you came thinking I would just do your surgery, but I'll say, you know, this is not a store where someone comes in and says, I'm going to give you so much and you're going to do my surgery. Mm -hmm. You and I have a relationship and I have a responsibility to you not to do your surgery. Nobody wants surgery. Surgery is a tool. Nobody wants surgery. Nobody wants a rhinoplasty. Patients want to have a nose that looks better, that makes them feel better. And so I would say I don't feel that technically I can get you there. Or I would say I don't feel I can make you happy by doing that. Mm. Always, always, always respecting the patient. Mm. I would never say anything that would diminish their confidence or diminish their self-respect. Mm. And I would sometimes say if you go down the street or, you know, if you're younger in particular, or if you feel there is someone who might be, do a better job for them, I would refer them to that particular mm. doctor. Happily so. And I call the doctor and tell them why with the patient's approval. But I always close the loop. And, and I think, frankly, this is a really important point that maybe many doctors don't do. If I felt they were really a poor candidate for anybody to do a rhinoplasty, I would say to them, listen, I know you can go down the street and you'll find a doctor to do your rhinoplasty. And I said, you might be happy and content with that. And you might turn around and say, well, this doctor, whomever it is, Dr. XYZ, is a better doctor than Dr. Adamson. And I'll say, I'll take that chance because I think the probability of that is very, very low. But if that does happen, I want you to know I will be very happy for you. I really will. But I want you to know that my professional advice is you will find people to offer to operate on your nose but I recommend strongly you do not have another operation on your nose. Mm. I know that's difficult to contend with, but I think you're better to start working with that now. And I would offer, if they were receptive, psychological assistance, whatever, rather than having another procedure and just be more concerned or more depressed than you are right now. And finally, if they were still pushing and you can't get them out of your office, we've all had that, right? And you've had them, you know, put piles of you know money on your desk and say, please, you know, please. I say, listen. I understand you really want me to do this. We've had a, you know, in my mind, too long a discussion already. Let me review your case, you know, tonight or tomorrow, and I will get back to you. Almost a minute they were out the door. Later that day, I'd be writing a letter. And I'd be saying just what I said to you in nicer ways, self-respect, but no, no, no. And I would always refund them their consultation fee or any monies they'd spent. Not because I hadn't spent a lot of time, not because I hadn't earned that consultation mm. fee or even two or three of them. I just wanted to close the relationship out. Mm. And it's the best money ever spent. And then you're done. That's but always right. respecting the patient. But that's so similar to what Barman Guyron told me as well a few weeks ago. The same thing where you think, but it's my time and it's my expertise that you've taken now and I'm not going to operate. You must pay for that. Don't. You just give that back. That's fascinating. Okay, so now this is going to be an interesting question. Question number 10. I want to know what you think about this structural versus preservation rhinoplasty. <laughs> well, boy, could we ever talk about that all day? This whole course is about that. Well, I think there's a tremendous amount of, uh, of, of confusion in, in rhinoplasty nomenclature and uh, not just the nomenclature, but how uh, people you know, utilize the terms these days. And many people are, what should I say, absconding with terms because it may suit a branding or a marketing purpose or whatever. And I believe that we can bring it all back to some basic principles 
and what we should deal with. So the first concept is this, is that from a rhinoplasty perspective, if we're talking aesthetic, every rhinoplasty, we want it to look better, aesthetic, and we want it to be structurally sound. And so regardless of your approach, sometimes you're going to have to do a little bit more, either removing tissue or putting in grafts than you might with some other patient, depending upon what they present you with and what everybody's overall goals are. And so I think that's where you could make the distinction about being conservative and trying to use suture techniques, which we all do as much as we can, rather than excising, because as soon as you start excising things, then we know that that weakens things, which means you may set yourself up to need to use structural grafts and things to make it stronger. So the minimal excision, then the less probably reconstruction structurally that we have to do. You know, but sometimes people say, well, what's conservative, what's radical or aggressive? I mean, if a person really needs a caudal septal extension graft, that may seem to be aggressive structurally, but if you're going to have loss of projection and counter-rotation post-op or need to revision, maybe it's not such an aggressive technique after all in the thick skin patient. So I think the thinking needs to be clarified. So do as much as you have to, but no more. Now, let's get then, so, so that's the structural part and that's what we've come along to, and I still believe in that. Now, preservation rhinoplasty I mean, I find it interesting that it's called a new trend. It was first described in 1899, and then again in 1914. And then again, Caudill, who is about as far back as most people go, was Lothrop in 1914, it was Goldhar, uh, something like that in, 19, in 1899. And then we have Caudill, and I met, uh, uh, maybe some of the listeners will like this, if they're doing preservation, right? I remember going to a course it was either France or Italy, and Yves Saban was there. This must have been back in the early 90s, and even I still laugh about this. And I was over there, of course, talking about, you know, open rhinoplasty and structure, and Yves was on the same program, and he was showing his, uh, you know, preservation rhinoplasty technique. And this is going back, goodness, 25, you know, 30 years ago. We still laugh, and he would say, look at this, Peter. Look at how I do it. Look at how I do it. And I looked at that. Oh, my goodness. That, you know, that's the caudal technique with modifications that's been around for a long time. So the point is, you know, this is not new. Now, you've heard the old expression, you know, what's one man's meat is one man's poison. Okay, so there are certain, what shall I say, philosophies around that if you're doing preservation rhinoplasty, well, you don't do much of the tip. Well, there's a lot of tips that need to be treated. Hmm. So you, you can't be preserving it, like I said a moment ago, not treating it if you leave a patient with quote unquote, a perfect dorsum and they've got a terribly boxy tip, over projected tip, whatever it is. So preservation rhinoplasty just can't refer to the dorsum. And again, I would offer you, I mean, what does the nasal bone say that it's being preserved when it's having a wedge of bone taken out? What does the radix say about it's being preserved when you do a transverse osteotomy? Mm-hmm. So that's not preservation for the nasal bones of the radix. Mm. It is preservation for the rhinion, okay, and the keystone arch and the axial arch and the crown concept we've been writing about a little bit. It does preserve that. And we know that everything we do in rhinoplasty, every technique we use as we add the numbers up in a given case, it provides us the opportunity to do something and get a better result, but everything we do also adds in a little fraction of a potential complication. Mm-hmm. 
And so it's why we want to do the least to get the most out of it. So I guess in some, I think that if some surgeons feel that they can get a better result by doing their bone wedge resection or double osteotomies or just a lateral osteotomy and whether it's a high or a low septal resection and do a, a push down or a let down technique and they're getting nice results, that's terrific. The literature that I've read shows there's still a, you know, a quote unquote revision rate. Take your pick. I've heard 12%, maybe it's 8%, whatever. It's going to be a little different more or less, but there still is. It's not perfect. But if that works for you, then do it. And similarly, if structure works for you, then do it. And I think it's important, I believe, not to become an ideologue. So if Dr. Saban, for example, who I think is a wonderful person and respect him so much, if he prefers to do most of his rhinoplasties that way, that's wonderful. He is not an ideologue. He only becomes an ideologue if he says everybody should do every rhinoplasty this way. And similarly, the person doing external rhinoplasty or open as long as they just say, this is the way I prefer to do it, it works better for me. It's like an artist using oils or, or acrylics, one's portrait, one's landscape, whatever. That's all fine as long as you're getting good results. You only become an ideologue when you say, this is the only way to do it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and I don't know, we may or may not talk about this a little, little later on, but of course, the, the, the uh, internet revolution and, you know, COVID-19 has created just, just a burst of innovation and, and a you know, burst of new ideas. We're going to get to that. And, I'm going to, I'm going to okay. pause and, you. And, and and clap. To so anyway, so, so bottom line is, I think, let's know what we're talking about. And let's not being try to be branding things so much. It's preservation yeah. of the, of the uh, you know, the, the nasal dorsum with preservation. But it's not preservation of the foundation of the bones or necessarily of the mm -hmm. septum. And that's okay. That's not meant to. Mm -hmm. I'm just saying, let's know what we're talking about here. That's all. <laughs> Okay, so question 11 now. What are for you some of the paradoxes of the conflicting messages that are surrounding rhinoplasty today? Um, well, we can go back just a touch and, and segue from there. I think there's still this thing about, you know, open, external versus, you know, closed endonasal rhinoplasty. And, and I think that, you know, they're both good operations. And the paradox is that we still seem to be having struggles that one group seems like, well, you know, we should be doing it this way more. And the other group, well, we got to be promoting this way more. Promote what you do for what you can get with it. But I don't think we need to be trying to impress anybody anymore that this is the only way to do it. Mm -hmm. I do some closed rhinoplasties. Now, granted, I don't do them very often. It's primarily on my own revision cases I would do them where I knew exactly what I'd done before, needed to take a little bit more bump down, or there was a little knuckle, and I knew what to do to fix it up. But that's just because of, you know, the reasons I like, you know, external rhinoplasty. And you haven't asked me that, so I won't go into it right now. Um, so that, that's one paradox. I think the other one is uh, what we really just covered in talking about the preservation versus structural. I mean, they, they don't need to be in two separate boxes. In one nose, you might do some preservation, you know, in another, and, and, and structural stuff. Uh, you, you might do both. That, that's okay. I, you know, I, I think that's good. One thing I think is a paradox, though, is that forever, for decades, as long as I've been around talking about this, everybody talks about the KISS principle. Keep it simple, surgeon. If you're not so kind, it's keep it simple, stupid, but keep it simple, surgeon. And yet, 
We all talk about that. But my God, look at the complexity of the techniques. Look at the, you know, they're not getting less complex. Mm -hmm. They are not getting less complex. So I think we have a real struggle on our hands. We say, don't do much, do the least you can. And then you look at some of this stuff and you think, my heavens, you know, for a novice rhinoplasty surgeon, a lot of these techniques are not going to be easy to do. There's a long learning curve for a reason. And then we have the whole situation that has come up a little bit more preservation. And this is not to be critical of a technique. It's just to note is that forever we've heard about, well, you know, there's a problem with the external approach because there's greater dissection. And I've always said, well, there's not greater dissection in an open approach than a closed approach. There's one little incision here. That's not greater in dissection. That's an incision. Now, if one does an open approach because they've got more work to do and they have to open it up more, you know, raise the skin soft tissue envelope more, fair enough, but you don't have to with an external approach. And yet, at the same time, we're talking preservation now, and we're degloving the whole middle third of the face almost to get in the instruments to do the work with preservation. So I mm -hmm. ask you, is that is that preserving the skin soft tissue envelope? Yeah. Now we get into discussion about elevation planes, you know, subsmas, supersmas, you know, ligaments, all the rest. But my point is, let's just be honest in what we're talking about. Yeah. And so we talk about the KISS principle, but there's an awful lot of people, especially, quote unquote, the master rhinoplasty surgeons, they love their new techniques. They love to innovate and try things. That's not the KISS principle. So there's that and the soft tissue elevation. Another thing, and I'm not sure whether you were going to get into this later or not, but just a little bit about, we all talk about, we want a natural result, natural mm -hmm. result. Well, you know, we could talk about beauty and what's natural, but the reality is we talk about that. And yet here we have a study by the American Academy of Facial Plastic Surgery last year, something like 83% of facial plastic surgeons thought that, you know, celebrity noses were impacting the requests that they were receiving mm -hmm. from their patients. Well, how the heck is a celebrity nose, quote unquote, I want a nose like Brad Pitt or whoever the heck it is. How is a celebrity nose a natural nose? And so there's tremendous conflict here. There's tremendous conflict about what really is natural. And natural is changing a lot. Mm -hmm. Not, well, with rhinoplasty to be sure, because of multi-ethnicity, multi-racial uh, societies we're living in, because of the demographic, socioeconomic impacts of things, also genetics with intermarriage. These things are affecting coinophilia, love of average. They are affecting what we see as a beautiful nose and indeed a beautiful face. It's when we get into facial plastic rejuvenation surgery that it's even more marked. Look at all the artificial beauty. Makeup is changing. Mm -hmm. Look at the tattoos. Mm -hmm. Look at the piercings. Now, tattoos are apparently on the wane a little bit, but you know, like in some societies, well over a quarter people have tattoos. You know, it, in my young age, and I've got nothing against tattoos. I've got a daughter who has one. Uh, but, you know, a tattoo was basically for prisoners or biker gang guys. It, it, but I'm just saying that's 40 years ago. Society has changed. And yeah, now it's yeah. a mark of individuality, of personality, and, and God love it. It's great. These things are having an incredible impact on what we think is beautiful and what people are asking for. And so what's natural? 
And what's natural really is changing, and it's changing increasingly so. So I guess my exhortation to all facial plastic surgeons is look very carefully at the demographic that you deal with, where you live, the kinds of people you have, and make sure you understand what is natural in your world, in their world, so that you can create happiness for them by achieving the results they want. And it's going to differ in various parts of the world. Okay, so in preparation for the next question, uh, question number 12, uh, I think back to a few years ago and I was busy studying for my international board exams for the certification of facial plastic surgery and the uh, prescribed textbook of the Ira Powell's book, Facial Plastic Surgery, and there was a line that came up that it said that if a man or woman has integrity, nothing else matters. And if a man or woman does not have integrity, nothing else matters. So this is the question. What determines a surgeon's reputation and how does that affect the value of your brand? We could talk around that a lot, but I'm going to dive right into it. You know what? There is actually an equation that defines your reputation and your brand value. And we could talk about this for a long time, but just to hit the highlights. So your reputation is measured by your performance, number one, your performance. So if we're talking about a surgeon, it's the results that you achieve. And that means if you want a good reputation, you have to be constantly thinking of Kaizen, you know, the Japanese term for constant improvement. As Gene Tardy said, you have to be a student uh, for life. And also very much critiquing your own results, looking at them and saying, what would I say about this result if it were the result of another surgeon and the patient were asking me what I thought about that result. So be honest with yourself. All progress begins by telling the truth. Be honest with your results, what you're achieving, study hard and determine how you can make them better. That's performance. And again, the corollary there, I mentioned earlier, but it's worth mentioning again, don't work outside your envelope. Push your envelope, try new things, but try not to go through it any more than you have to. The second part of what determines your reputation is your behavior. So that relates a little bit to the, the, the quote that you said. Behavior is a little bit, indeed, about your integrity, and it's about your principles. It's about your ethics, your morality, your professionalism. We could, again, there's a lot that goes into that, but that's your behavior. You must behave according to your true self. And we're all going to be a little different. We're all unique individuals. That's fine. But if you're a good person, you will have good principles and you will have good behavior. And something we all hear about when people talk about marketing and practice, whatever, it is critically important if you have an independent practice that the people around you all behave following your principles, your professionalism, because your patients are going to have their first interaction with them, if not your website, but with them. And your, your staff are going to have much more interactions with your patients than you are. So, you know, that's, that's, that's behavior. And the third component is communication. How do you communicate that? So whether it's your website, whether it's what you tell patients in the office, it's your respect for people. You can't just, you know, talk the talk. You've got to walk the walk. And so communicate that to other people. And uh, just a quick digression, you know, many of us don't like all these rating sites very much, but you're, everybody's going to get a few, you know, ones that aren't so good. But look at some of them, and there may be some things you can learn. Some things maybe you could make better. And so you take those factors, performance, uh, behavior, and um, 
what was the last one I just said? <laughs> uh, communication, sorry, communication. And then you multiply all those by what's called your authenticity factor. So how truly authentic do you come across to people? Again, this is your integrity. This is who you are. And so you must be authentic. If it looks like it's all a smokescreen, people are not going to buy it. Mm. So that's what that's how you increase your reputation. Those are the components, the factors that come into play. Now, it's very easy, actually, in business terms to determine what's your brand value. And so your brand, if you are, you know, uh, Cameron McIntosh, your brand is Dr. Cameron McIntosh, facial plastic surgeon. Now, granted, when you open your new hospital and if you go under the brand umbrella of a whole hospital, then you will be working within that brand as well. So it would be a little bit like the Sprite brand, maybe within the Coca-Cola family. But you will have a brand individually and your, your company corporation may have a brand. So what the value of that is this. You take the value of sales of your brand and you subtract from that the value of sales of the generic, no brand, and you multiply that by the number of units. So I'll make that simple. Let's say that you become experienced, you've got a great reputation, you've done those things we just talked about, and you can charge $10,000 for rhinoplasty. And you do uh, 100 rhinoplasties a year. You've just earned $700,000 as branded Dr. Cameron McIntosh because you've got a good brand, you've got a good reputation. Now let's say we take Dr. McIntosh and he's only about out in practice six months and he's just getting started. Or maybe he's been out in practice for 10 years but doesn't have a very good reputation and people don't really want to come to see him. I know that would not be the case. but And let's say you could only charge $7,000, say, for your rhinoplasty, not 10,000, but seven. And you're still doing 100 a year. You might not even be doing that many, mind you. If you're not that good, you might be doing fewer, okay? Mm -hmm. So let's say you're doing 50 a year instead of 100 because you're not that good at it. You don't have a good reputation for it. So 50 rhinoplasties times 7,000, that's $350,000. The value of your reputation and your brand is $350,000. It's the 700,000 you could have been making being branded favorably minus the generic Cam McIntosh, $350,000. That's the value of the, your brand. And that's, that's how they work it out in business. That's fascinating. I'm sitting here thinking, what's my brand value? Okay, let's, let's move on. <laughs> let's get to question number 14. I know you've spoken about this. I need you to explain this thing when you analyze aesthetic surgery between thinking fast and thinking slow. Yeah, this is a, this is a wonderful uh, concept out of uh, you know Princeton University, and the the fellow who, who came up with this, um, uh, you know, won the Nobel Prize as a you know in, in psychology. And so, what we're really taught as surgeons, in, in fact, most all academic pursuits, we really are taught slow thinking. We're taught you know knowledge. Uh, we we're taught to think logically. Uh, we're taught to use algorithms. We're taught to plan. Uh, to analyze things, and then we come to a plan of action. And so that's your slow analytic thinking. It's a very conscious process that we do. And, of course, when we sit down, any of us who do, and do a diagnostic before a rhinoplasty or aging face, and then we do a, a written plan or whatever what we're going to do, that's all your slow thinking. And it's important to do that. Now, 
Your fast thinking is that emotional subconscious thinking. It's like meeting someone for the first time and you know within three seconds you like them or you don't like them. Mm. You haven't had time to even ask them what their name is or get introduced to them, but you get a sense of them. And so this really comes from a gestalt, and it's your mind. Your mind does this, and it takes all the little bits of experience in your entire life about this kind of person, where you are, just how you're feeling at that moment. And it says to you, I like it, I don't like it, I need to be worried about this, I don't need to be worried about this. So, for example, when we scan a face, we can scan seven faces a second. That's how quick our mind is. One, one point one five of a second to scan a face and recognize it or not recognize it. Point one five of a second. If you just open your eyes, blink, and see that's a good-looking nose on that face or it's not. Now, you can sit down and do a 20-minute analysis afterwards, but basically, mm-hmm. in, in one-seventh of a second, it's a big part of your fast-thinking decision-making. So my point is that your best decision-making comes into play when you intellectually can try to combine those things. And of course, in the old days, or if you want to keep it simple, people would say, listen to your gut. You know, if your gut tells you, don't operate on that patient or don't do this, listen to your gut. So certainly you should do that, but not solely. You really should combine both fast Mm -hmm. and slow thinking if you're going to make the best decisions. It's not just about this, Cam. It's about who you want to date, if that's what you're doing. It's Mm -hmm. whether you want to buy a house Mm-hmm. or take that big trip. It, it works for most things in life. Well, that's good. I'm, gonna, I'm definitely the, the fast thinker, not the slow thinker. I need to add more slow thinking to my life. Okay, question well, number Cam, 15. Let, 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 no, let me comment on it really quickly. You're right. So you're what I would call a quick start. That's another whole story. Yeah. But what you made a really important point. Very quickly, I'll say, so it's true. If, if you recognize as you're the leader of your team in your office, your practice, whatever, you will have, each of us has their certain talents, hmm. and that's okay. That's good. Mind them as much as you can. But if you recognize that you're maybe not quite so good at this other thing, hmm. that's what you bring people into your team who can do that. And that's how you make a great team. It's like any sports team. You know, the forwards aren't like the defensemen aren't like the goalies. Yes. You've got to get people who have unique abilities. That's yeah. how you build a strong team. Yeah. No, that's true. That's great. Thing. Okay. So question 15, what is your favorite type of rhinoplasty patient to operate on and why? Uh, I always loved the adolescent uh, females. These are young women who, of course, are going through puberty. They have a very, very uh, conscious awareness of their body image and whether they like it and don't like it. And they really determine quite early in their teen years, sometimes as young as 12 or 13, whether it's mostly their nose. I don't do body surgery, but you could make similar arguments about about those who are having breast surgery, for example. But uh, talking about the nose, they really know specifically what they don't like, whether it's just too big or they got a bump. I mean, they just spit it out and it's right there. As long as they have their parental support, which we need to have them have up until they're age 18, which usually parents are supportive, then I find they've just become a tremendously good patient because as long as you improve that concern they have, their body image very quickly gets improved, which improves their self-image. And this improves 
their self-esteem. Usually, of course, they're getting good input from their family, positive input for this. They usually are getting positive input from their friends when they do this as well. And they were ready to have it done. And studies show that they almost have magical thinking about this. It's like a magical transformation. It's like the butterfly coming out. And if you do a lot of adolescent young women, you'll see this happens. It's some of these young women who've been a little introverted or they don't have a lot of confidence. It just boosts their yeah. self-confidence and their quality of life. And I've had so much pleasure, you know, uh, knowing these young women and seeing them move forward. And what's more, they tell their friends, their mothers bring in their girlfriends and their, you know, their, their, you know, the mother's daughters, etc. And they also, these patients, as they get older, I, I, you know, hundreds and hundreds, I can't count them, came back as they did get older for eyelids or Botox or whatever. So I just found them a wonderful group to work with. And we actually did some studies just to show that using the uh, Glasgow uh, inventory scale to show that uh, really their quality of life was improved across all standards. So very positive experience for everybody. That's great. Okay. So question 16, how do you feel social media is impacting the ethical behavior of aesthetic surgery? Wow. Well, the internet social media is impacting everything incredibly. And of course, the main thing is, is that everybody has access to knowledge and information across the world. So as they say, the world has been flattened from, uh, from uh, an information or knowledge perspective. So there are some good things about social media and the internet, you know, for our patients and for us. There's no doubt that our patients come with much more knowledge today than they used to. Uh, you know, the bad part of that we'll talk about in a moment when they say, you know, well, doctor, are you going to use a spreader graft on the right side? Or, you know, are you going to use a columnar strut or a caudal septal extension graft? I mean, that is the bad side of it. But they do come with a lot of information. Uh, in the old days, I mean, again, I've been around long enough, Cam, that I'd often get referrals that, you know, Dr. Jones or Smith down the street would just send me a patient. They'd come in. I was the only referral. I'd do their operation. That was the beginning and end of it. Nobody had a website to go look at. Nobody went online. It was very, very much simpler. It was doctors who referred to doctors. And now, of course, it's the patient experience online, which basically informs other patients. Mm -hmm. We, the doctors get our message out in our websites or chat rooms or other things, but so much of it is patients talking to each other as well as speaking to us. So it, it is good they know more. It, it's good that they often have seen results and they know what they can uh, expect. I think it's good for the surgeons too. As I said a little while ago, you can go online and look at your ratings and things. I mean, there are some that may be neutral that this and that was good, but this wasn't so good. And you can learn something from it. However, I think there are some very, very disconcerting aspects about social media as well. Uh, the first thing is, is that I think it's an existential challenge, frankly, not just social media, but the internet. It's an existential challenge to us individually and our societies. And that is, what is truth? We don't know what the truth is anymore. Because even if you're really critical, people can put up stories that you just believe, or at least an awful lot of people will believe them. And so social media has created, as we all know, you know, silos of knowledge. And people know what they know, but not a lot outside that. And 
I don't know if other people have used this term, but I've coined the term or started using the term, outside the silos of knowledge are wastelands of ignorance. And so there's an incredible challenge to us to make sure the information that the patients come and they think they have is correct, because it's not always, uh, not always correct. The biggest thing perhaps is, is that, you know, we never used to have patients going online and explaining all about their surgical experience with you, be it positive or negative or in between. And I think this puts a tremendous challenge on surgeons to try to get good results. And I think that oftentimes, you know, surgeons get pilloried uh, when they should not be. You know, mm. we're, we can't get perfect results. Patients can't expect perfect results, but that's what they see online. And so there's been an expectation that's been elevated. They all have an enhanced sense of entitlement, an enhanced sense of what you can really do. And mm -hmm. we can do more things. We get, we're better at rhinoplasty for sure. We've learned so much, but there still are limits uh, to what uh, we can do. So I think this is a, is a huge challenge. I think another big challenge for surgeons and for patients is this so-called attention economy. And we have a situation now where everybody wants your attention online. You can't get, even get an email without getting an ad for something. You know, everybody wants access to everything. I turn down everything because I don't want my attention taking places I don't want it to go. But also what it's forced surgeons to do is to create their own attention economy where I got to have people look at me. Mm. All the surgeons are out there with their websites and their social media pages saying, look at me, look at me. Because if they don't say, look at me, they're worried the potential patient's looking at somebody else. So there's an incredible amount of energy being expended to say, look at me. And a part of all of this, as many studies will show, is that we do have certainly younger patients today, under the age of 40 or so, elevated levels of anxiety and concern, elevated levels of narcissism, 25, 35%, depending on your studies. Uh, people are becoming individual, in, narcissistic because of all this mm. Zoom work, selfies, and all the rest of it. Mm. Not to mention, of course, without getting into it all, but all the, you know, the, the Zoom face and the, you know, the iPhone face with the distortions and the two-dimensional aspect of it, which people think the noses are huge because there's a thirty percent, you know, enlargement of their image, which may be good or bad news for you. But what do people want to look like? What they look like? on their iPhone or on Zoom, or they want to look like what they look like in real life when they actually see somebody after this pandemic goes away. So I think that's a huge, huge issue is how we manage all this. Mm -hmm. And I think that it's obvious surgeons have to be involved in this, but I think take a step back once in a while and put the brakes on a little bit so that you can manage the whole social media world. And having said that, Cam, it's only going to get more so. We don't even mm. know some of the types of apps and things that are going to come out mm. in the future. I think there will be incredible positivity with it. When you look at things like the webinars, the podcasts you're doing, this isn't purely social media, but these things, it's increasing mm. innovation. It's increasing our, our ability to collaborate. Uh, we're making friends all around the world. But I still believe we are going to want to gather and shake a hand and give a hug too. I don't think this is going <coughs> to you know, replace our past completely. Okay. So now on another question for you. I want to know a little bit more about the face the future humanitarian work that you've done. What is it? Tell us a little bit more about it. 
Um, well, back in 1996, I had the uh, great fortune when I was just uh, just coming into the uh, the uh, head of the uh, American Academy to um, go on a, a surgical mission to Yekaterinburg in Russia, where they had a children's orphanage there, the Bonham Center, and um, they had a whole number of children with facial deformities, congenital, traumatic, um, that couldn't be adopted because their parents had given them up. And so uh, uh, so began missions there, and uh, we operated these children. Ultimately, there were 92 children from that center who got adopted uh, in various you know places around the world. So when I got back, I was very lucky. I was talking to a, a patient of mine who was fairly well-to-do, and she said, you know, we should have something like that in Canada. She said, I think it's great you've gone with the Americans, but you, you start a foundation here, and I'm going to give you some seed money to start it. And that's how we got started 25 years ago. And then we changed the name a few years back to Face the Future Foundation. So at this point in time, we've had 45 surgical missions, varying in number from very low end as four or five up to we have a team of 20 that goes to Rwanda. And um, currently we go to Rwanda, Ethiopia, Nepal. We still have a, a mission going to uh, Russia as well. And we're looking at three new uh, potential sites, uh, some in Africa, some in other places of the world. So I'm hoping in the next couple of years to be up to seven different uh, places we go. And how we work is that it's all through people knowing people. And we say to the local surgeons, what is it you need? You know, what do you need help with? It's not about we're going to come and do a head and neck surgery. We say, what do you need? And then I go out, get a mission director and team leaders, and we get the best surgeons in the world we can who want to come with us. Mm. And we create a team. And it's not to go for one year. So, oh, well, I've been there. Obviously, if they really don't like it. They don't need to go. But most of our surgeons have been going 5, 10, 15 years even. We create a team that's going to go back every year, so we create great relationships. Our goal is to build capacity and enhance sustainability. So besides operating on all these kids, by the way, in Rwanda, uh, you know, Kofi Bohaney and, uh, and uh, Jeremy Richmond, uh, most people would know, know them, uh, we routinely do 12 free flaps in one week, in addition to another 30 to 40 major cases. Uh, Holger Gassner goes and does a lot of, uh, you know, very uh, complex, uh, advanced uh, facial reconstruction. So we do some really complex work, but we're teaching them. Our job over time is to work ourselves out of a job and go to other places. And so we've managed to keep this going. We had a big fundraising event last year, and it's mostly been friends of mine and, and um, you know, colleagues who've, who've made all this happen. And this is my big project now, as I said, make your future greater than your past. And this is what I'm working on now for the uh, next number of years to build this out as much as I can and prepare, of course, for a really smooth succession. So how do people reach out to the, the foundation? Anybody can send me uh, an email and I do keep a list of individuals who would like. And the only thing I'm cautious about saying is that uh, there are you know, some wonderful surgeons I would love to take, but if, if the need hasn't been expressed by the people on the ground for that, then I may not have a role for them. But if I don't know who would like to go, we certainly can't call them up and ask them to come. So I'm always delighted to hear from people, and we want people who would really like to commit. Commit to this as a part of as, as their life. It's, it's just one week a year, so it's not a huge amount of time, but that would say, yes, I'll go every year, uh, all things being equal. Great. Okay. Question 18, and this is something that I have so much respect for, is how you've, you are so passionate of keeping the standard of teaching around the world at a high level in facial plastic surgery. So tell us 
what is this international board certification facial plastic surgery and the American Board of Facial Plastic uh, Surgery Examination for the listeners. Please tell us a little bit more about that. Yes, Cam, I've always enjoyed uh, teaching because I feel that that way we can, you know, give knowledge to others and we can exponentially improve uh, the, uh, you know, expand knowledge around the world. That makes it better for patients. And it's also how our specialty has to build. We're a small specialty in relative terms. And so I do believe, again, just to comment about all these webinars and things, that we do have to stick together. I think it's fine for everybody to be doing their little thing. But we've got to remember our greater organizations because it's they that are going to have impact um, with hospitals, with regulatory bodies, with governments, etc., and our place at the big table uh, in medicine. So uh, way back in the late 80s, uh, the American Academy already had the foundation, which was for charitable work, and of course, the socioeconomic arm, the academy. And the thing it didn't have was a board to certify. So I was asked at that time to create a board exam. And uh, we worked for two years, and there were 65 people all together working on the orals and the writtens, and we created what is the American Board of Facial Plastic Surgery Examination in, in a two-year period. And so, as you know, that's been around now for more than uh, 25 years, and it really has set uh, the standard. And then uh, way back in the early 2000s, uh, we had some international people start to take the examination, but we didn't have a board. But in 2012, the International Board for Certification in Facial Plastic uh, Surgery was uh, created. And so people do sometimes ask, Cam, and you and I might have even had this discussion many years ago, well, you know, why, sh why should I do that? Well, there's a number of reasons to do it. First of all, we're finding that increasingly hospitals, you know, if they find out that you have the International Board certification, they're much more amenable to saying, well, yeah, you can have privileges to do facelifts or you can have privileges to do, uh, you know, uh, uh, Mohs uh, reconstructions or whatever it might be because they can recognize the value of it and the board does, uh, you know, support that. It's interesting where I mentioned earlier about going to the Netherlands, the Netherlands now uh, to really get privileges in hospitals, you really need to have this international board as part of the European board, the European board. And the Netherlands now has more diplomates. There's diplomates in 34 countries, but it's got more diplomates in the Netherlands, a relatively small country, than any other country in the world. So it's for the hospital privileging, which can help. It's for the regulatory recognition and approval going down the line. And in that way, we're going to help build especially. But the main reason the main reason is it's each individual surgeon saying to himself or herself, you know, I want to be the best that I can be. I want to really prove to myself that I am at the top tier in my expertise, my skills, and my practice as a facial plastic and reconstructive surgeon. So that's the real reason to do it. For you to say to yourself, I want to know I climbed that mountain. Mm -hmm. I want to be a diplomat. And in doing so, you'll be a pioneer. We have about 150 diplomates around the world now, but we're just getting established. When I say we, the International Federation is really putting a push on now for more fellowships. And those fellows, of course, will sit the exam. This is the way we're going to build our specialty. So do your own thing, but do think about the specialty because we'll all be stronger individually if the specialty is stronger. Okay, we... we into the final straight of the last two questions. So question number 19 is how, if you look back at your career, 
has the information technology revolution changed facial plastic surgery? I remember, I mean, you won't believe this, I'm sure. I can remember going, first of all, to academy meetings, and we had nothing electronic. I literally took a suitcase because I was on five or six darn committees. I took a suitcase filled with file folders. And I can remember up until we started to get those memory sticks, which to my mind is a greater invention than ice cream. When I, we used to go to meetings and I'd, we'd take eight carousels. I'd take eight carousels, which is 80 slides a pop. That was, uh, you know, 640 slides. And we'd go to a, uh, you know, at a meeting someplace. Obviously, we'd, every night they'd take us out for dinner. We'd get home at 11 or 12 o'clock at night. We'd start unloading four, five, 600 or more Kodachrome slides and putting them in sleeves and then loading the next up for the next day when you had three or four hours of lectures. You go to bed at three o'clock in the morning and start again at eight. So I'll tell you, when memory sticks came along, it just, wow, wow. thank the Lord. <laughs> you know, and pass the ammunition or whatever the expression is. So that was really something. When I started CAM, uh, they had fax machines. I remember getting a 240K computer in 1983 in my office, and so many people thought you'll never need anything stronger than this. You know, I mean, 240K, that's that's just 240K. I mean, my God. And so, and I remember, you'll laugh, the first time somebody mentioned to me, well, you know, there's this new thing, email. I can still remember it. It was the, the head of art at the Toronto General Hospital. So this thing called email. I said, what's email? She said, well, you can, you know, type your computer and it goes electronically. And my very first thought was, well, what would you need that for? I said, you can fax or you can send a letter. And then I thought about it for about three minutes and the light bulb went on. I thought, my God, how this is going to change everything. So what we all recognize is that the world now moves at warp speed. So it's a good thing. In, you know, it's a great thing in many ways. So, the, again, the collaboration, the innovation, we would travel to countries. I've taught in 40 different countries. But back in those early days, Hardly anybody would speak English, you know, in the non-English speaking countries. And there have to be translators. And nowadays, because of the information technology revolution, virtually all the doctors around the world, you know, who want to keep you know, on the leading edge at all, they're all learning English. There's been a huge impact in that regard. And look at how much we talk back and forth to all the various countries. Look at how much we learn with their experiences. So I think that's been the most uh, the most critical thing i did mention as well the problem with the attention economy with the problem with truth because you know not everybody is as ethical or professional or truthful as they should be and i think that's a real issue in all specialties but ours too um so i think there are many great challenges with it but we're certainly not going backwards and i think that our our, our goal, our mandate has to be to make the most of it and, and try to get a little bit better control on some aspects of it, especially as we know there's going to be even greater and, and faster technology coming along, which reminds me, I think I thought of something while well, let's see if I can remember this. Oh, I know what a person says is, I love this expression. I may not be fast. No, I may not be smart. I may not be smart, but I'm slow. Okay. I may not be smart, but I'm slow. You know, it's a bit of a, okay, so what? So, you know, the computers are saying, I may not be smart, but I'm fast. And now we have machine learning, artificial intelligence, and it's saying, I'm smart and I'm fast.
So where this world is going to take us is, is, is going to be a great ride. That's interesting. Okay. So we're coming to the last question. Um, on the one hand, it's something that's been changed the world. On the other hand, it's brought so much suffering and pain. COVID and this pandemic you're going through, how do you think it's going to change the way we teach facial plastic surgery? Well, I think that there's almost no doubt when you look at the enthusiasm that there has been for, you know, webinar series, uh, Cam, you know, like yours and, and, you know, World Rhinoplasty Day and many, many others I know around the world are establishing these. There's no doubt that we are going to uh, continue to utilize these tools because people don't need to travel and they're just wonderful advantages to that. Having said that, I also think, relating back to the artificial intelligence, I think we're going to find new tools coming forward. It may well be that, you know, individuals are going to be able to work from home with their mouse and they're going to be able to train doing a surgical procedure on their screen. Uh, and, uh, you know, maybe even get haptic uh, feedback, you know, coming home, coming home to you. So there's one thing that's been shown in time is that even the great inventors, the great innovators never really could figure out what their invention would be used for. You know, when Edison invented the light bulb, he truly thought that what it would be good for would be people could read after dark. I mean, he, he had no idea about electricity and you know, look what's happened with electricity. So we really can't see it, but I think that we can just sort of sense there's going to be some amazing things which are going to connect us virtually even closer than we are. On the other hand, the technology is moving much faster than human social evolution. We just aren't moving as fast as that. We may move faster, but we cannot keep up with that. So I think as humans, we are going to want to have that contact that touch. I think it's going to be more challenging to do so. And I think we're going to be finding new ways to do that. And undoubtedly, there's going to be a hybrid of the virtual learning and great advances there, but also making the most of our, you know, in-person, in-touch uh, relationships. Uh, so I think that's where we're going to go. And I guess all I can say is I think that all of us probably hope we get there sooner than later because this COVID is really hanging on. And, and we know we even those, you know, those of us in the in the you know more developed world rather than developing world that we are getting further ahead of this. But those people in the developing world, this is going to be rolling around for, you know, a couple of years or longer yet. It may become mm. quite endemic. So this has become a part of our life. And. Let's just hope we can make it unfold in the most positive fashion uh, possible under these circumstances. Great. Sure. Prof, well, on behalf of all the listeners from all over the world, it's been a lovely 20 questions to listen to. And, <laughs> and just you know, thanks for sharing your pearls of wisdom. Um, yeah, and, and from, from my side, it's, yeah, I just, yeah, I, I thank you for what you've done for rhinoplasty over all these decades. You've, you've added so much to so many people's lives. Uh, I don't think you even realize. So, yeah, thank you so much. And thank you for taking a Sunday afternoon off in, in a Canadian summer to listen to, I mean, share this with, with everybody around the world. So, yeah, from the rhinoplasty podcast, everyone's listening. Thank you so much. Thank you, Cam. And thank you all who've been on the call.